Thank you to Ed and Ewan for uh, being willing to share a little bit. Um, their thoughts on joy and this idea that fun is spiritual. If you're new or visiting with us today, you might be like, what are they talking about? That's a great question to be asking, and we're going to explore that here in just a minute together. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here at Discovery. It's great to be together again. If we have not had the chance to meet before, hopefully uh, we're able to meet this morning. Uh, today, we are going to be in John chapter 2. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and someone on our team can uh, come around and make sure you have one of those. Um, otherwise, be looking up John chapter 2. You can find that in the New Testament um, you can find that on your phone. The verses will also be up on the screen as well. That's where we're going to be here. Let's pause for a moment, though, and pray um, before we get into it uh, too much further. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are, again, grateful for the ability to be here, to gather in this place, to celebrate who you are and what you have done for us through the person of your son, Jesus. We pause here for a moment. Uh, God, we invite your spirit to come. We know you're already here and active and, and working, but would you come and still our minds and quiet our hearts? Help us to take a deep breath here for a few moments. With all the things that we bring into this space, our, our, our worries, our concerns, maybe even things that we are really excited about, we come in with a lot. Would you hold that for us so that we can be fully present in this moment? Help us to be all here for the remainder of our time together that we might hear from your word, that we might hear your voice speaking to us in all sorts of ways, through scripture, through song, through conversations, through communion, the reminder of what good news Jesus really is for us. How abundant and lavish and over the top your grace is towards us. We couldn't earn it. There's nothing that we could do to make ourselves more appealing and more pleasing to you. While we were still messed up, and full of sin, God, you died for us at that moment. So that there, there would be a way for us to be in relationship with you again. And we are so grateful for that news this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John chapter 2 is where we are going to be here. Uh, but to set us up, just a reminder about where we are, what we're talking about, what's going on in this series that we are calling Our Kind of Crazy, all right? This is week three, and this title, Our Kind of Crazy, is our sort of tongue-in-cheek way of getting at the idea of culture. Who are we, and, and who do we want to be as a church? So far, we've defined culture as a shared way of doing something with a passion, all right? Culture is a shared way of doing something with a passion. That something for us here at Discovery is our mission, helping people discover the good news of Jesus. And our mission has led us to have a, a pretty big vision for the future. We hope in the next three to five years to be a part of planting a church. We want to be a multiplying church that plants multiplying churches. This is a big dream for us. It's kind of out there on the horizon. And so in order to get there, there's all sorts of smaller steps that we will need to take in order for this vision to become reality. 
And so one of those smaller steps is what we are doing this fall in this conversation. We need to name and own our values, who we are as a church. This is the the how. How do we go about accomplishing the mission of helping people discover the good news? And so for the first four weeks of this series, we are looking at our core values. So far, we've looked at the value of relationships, this idea that we are better together. And then last Sunday, we looked at authenticity and our desire to be a church for the rest of us. If you have missed out on any of that, I would encourage you to go back and take a listen uh, to some of those teachings. Now today we're talking about joy and uh, the sort of hashtag that goes along with this is this idea of fun is spiritual. And I think with our our previous two values, there's a, a sense for most of us uh, as the sort of the theory or the theology behind why relationships are important and why authenticity is important. Oftentimes with those two ideas, the challenge is more on the application side. How do we actually do this? How do we actually live this out? And so the last two weeks, we've landed at, in a place of challenge, looking at how can you get involved in, in serving here at Discovery? How can you get involved in community? How can we be a church that really is open to anybody? But with this one joy, I think that there is a sort of intuitive sense of what the application here is or should be. And especially that idea of fun is spiritual, right? Oh, that sounds like a good thing. Like we want to have, uh, we want to have fun. We want to have good times together. We want to be people who are full of joy. But sometimes the theology behind that can be a little bit trickier for us to understand. So today's going to be heavier on kind of the front side of that and, and moving us towards less practical challenge, more shifts that we need to make in our thinking in order to be a church where fun really is spiritual. So in the spirit of Haruki Murakami's memoir, what I talk about when I talk about running, a really great little book, we're going to talk about what we talk about when we talk about joy, okay? (laughs) That's a mouthful. All right, well, let's begin with this. C.S. Lewis once described joy as the serious business of heaven. Okay, joy is the serious business of heaven. Now, this is kind of counterintuitive, right? Joy and seriousness, why and how do those things go together? I think Lewis does a really important thing here by tying these two words into the same quote. On the one hand, our mission, this thing called the kingdom of heaven, helping people discover the good news of Jesus, this is serious business. If this is true, if what Jesus said is true, if what he did is true, the reality that God sent his son to earth to live among us and to die in our place and then rose again from the dead. If that is true, this is the most important thing. This is serious, right? We must take this seriously. And yet, at the same time, sometimes that does lead us to a place of being maybe too serious, taking ourselves too seriously, or even thinking that we are the Savior of the world. And so I love this tension that Lewis introduces here between Uh, joy and seriousness. It also points towards a a distinction that the guys made in the video a few moments ago, this this distinction between happiness and joy. And this is one where I think we can get confused quite often. The dictionary definition of happiness is to be characterized by good luck or fortunate. And even in the definition, we begin to see happiness is circumstantial. 
right? It's, it's about something good happens to us and we feel good about it. We feel happy. Something bad happens, we feel unhappy. Now here's the rest of C.S. Lewis's quote. He says, there was no doubt that joy was a desire, but a desire turned not to itself, but to its object. Not only that, but it owes all its character to its object. In other words, our happiness is often tied to how we feel about the circumstances that are around us. Joy, though, is about what do we put our hope and our faith and our trust in. Those are very different things. Joy owes its character to its object. Joy grounded in something much deeper and more foundational than the circumstances of our lives and how we respond to those circumstances. So one thing that this means is that when we talk about joy here as a value at discovery, we are not talking about being happy all the time. This does not mean that this is the kind of church where you have to sort of put on your church face and pretend like everything is okay anytime you walk in on Sunday morning or go to a group during the week. Pretending like everything is fine is not what we're talking about. But when we talk about joy, we are talking about, we're getting right into the heart of the good news about Jesus. And to help uh, us get into this even further, let's take a look at this scene in John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. And you can read along with me or again follow along on the screen as well. On the third day, this is verse 1 of chapter 2, on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, there is all kinds of stuff going on in this scene. This is just 11 verses, and yet it is loaded with all sorts of things that we could talk about. We could talk about Mary. We could talk about the relationship between Jesus and his mom. We can talk about uh, marriage ceremonies and, and, and Jewish cultural values and norms and how these sorts of parties were supposed to go. There's so many things that we could unpack and talk about here. But remember, this morning we're looking at this through the lens of joy and this idea that fun is spiritual. So what I want to do here is just draw out three things that I think help us in our understanding of joy as a value. Why we say this is one of our four core values because it does get us into some very, very deep and important theological truth. 
Now, I'm going to get to that in a moment. I want to give you a little bit of background, though, on John, the book of John, the gospel of John, how he tells the Jesus story, because it's very unique and it's very different from some of the other ways that people tell the Jesus story. And if you've been with us for a while, you know we spent a lot of time in Matthew. Matthew and John, very different stylistically in how they tell the Jesus story. Now, John comes out and gives us his thesis at the end of the book. So in John chapter 20, he says this, Jesus performed many other signs, pay attention to that word, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In other words, John said, I left a lot uh, on the editing room floor. But these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Again, John is telling us Jesus did all kinds of stuff. But there's a group of signs that he performed that I want to tell you about because I think they will help you understand who he is, what he came to do, and they will help you believe in him. So what he does is he names seven signs throughout the book. Seven signs that will inspire belief. Now let's, let's again continue to think about the context here. John begins this story... John 1, 1, with the words, in the beginning. In the beginning. And for his uh, primarily Jewish audience, they would have immediately thought about Genesis chapter 1, which begins exactly the same way. In the beginning. So John here is connecting the Jesus story all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the beginnings of the world. Then John organizes his book around these seven signs that Jesus performs. Now remember, when we were in Matthew, we saw that his organizing principle was five teachings or five discourses. John's organizing principle is these seven signs. And that number, not random. Seven signs corresponding with the seven days of creation. John tells us at the end of our scene this morning, this was the first sign. A couple chapters later, Jesus heals a boy, and we're told this was the second sign that Jesus performed. And you get the idea. You can follow this through. Now, here's what's interesting. The seventh sign that Jesus performs occurs in John chapter 11 when he raises a guy named Lazarus from the dead. This pretty significant foreshadowing moment about how the story is going to go. Now, that's the seventh sign. There's still ten chapters left in the book. One more really big sign that John wants us to know about, and this is obviously going to be Jesus' death and his resurrection. Now, some interesting things happen around Jesus' death and his resurrection. Jesus arrested in a garden, John 18, verse 1. Jesus crucified, and then he is buried in a tomb, which happens to be in a garden, John 19, 41. And then when he comes back from the dead, the first person he talks to, Mary Magdalene, thinks that he is the gardener. What is John doing here? 
Okay? He's giving us all these little hints. Something big is going on in the person of Jesus. He connects the story all the way back to creation. He gives us seven signs corresponding to the seven days of creation. And then he wants us to see, oh, there's also more. There's an eighth sign, Jesus' resurrection. There is a new creation that is happening. There's a new creation bursting forth right in the midst of the old one. And as John uh, shows us this, he wants us to see this is God's son. This is the Messiah. This is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the one who makes us right with God. Now, that's the big picture context of John's story. We want to go back now to John chapter 2, to the first sign. What is it about this first sign that is important and significant? What does it teach us about joy and about our mission as a church? Well, again, given the context of new creation, John, or Jesus' first miracle is an affirmation of creation itself, of the physical world. Jesus takes this very elemental thing, water, and he turns it into something new, wine. Here in this first sign, this first miracle, I mean, the whole story is there to be seen. Jesus is going to be about transformation, taking the old and making it new. Jesus is going to change everything about the world, but he's going to do it from within creation itself. Now, there's all kinds of interesting sort of implications to this. Many of us live with a binary or bifurcated worldview that says the material, physical world is bad and the spiritual world is better. This worldview actually does not come from Scripture. It comes from Greek philosophy. Now, when I teach on this, sometimes people get a little bit freaked out and they'll they'll point to verses like Colossians 3, 2, which says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So I want to spend a few moments kind of unpacking this because I think it helps bring the point to light. So Colossians 3, it it comes from a letter written by a guy named Paul. This guy, Paul, was a very brilliant person who was multicultural in his perspective. He's writing a letter to a specific church in a specific city called Colossae, and that church was very Greek culturally. So as he speaks to them, as he writes this letter, he's using a framework that they would have understood to communicate a deep truth. Now, the word for above in Colossians 3.2 can be translated as full. In fact, it is the same word used in John chapter 2 to talk about how full the jugs of water were when the servants filled them up to the brim. So maybe a better way of translating this verse would be to say, set your mind on things that are full, not on things that are empty. Set your mind on what actually matters, not on things that are trivial. Paul is not talking about places, one that's up in the clouds and and is, you know, all, uh, you know, harmony and harps and all this kind of stuff. And then a physical place on the ground that's dirty and bad. He's talking about your mind. 
over and over throughout Scripture, the biblical worldview is deeply affirming of the physical, material world that we inhabit. God created this world. His Spirit is present in this world, holding it together. Jesus entered into our world and then transforms the world using what is here and present, water to wine. He still does this type of miracle all the time. Taking what we have, what is already here, and making it into something new. Multiplying it into so much more. Again, a lot of us, we live with these these binaries, you know, up here, down here, or spiritual, secular, things like that. We'll say things from time to time like, I just need to really focus on my spiritual life. But what we learn from Scripture, from Jesus' incarnation, from this first sign, this affirmation of creation, you don't have a spiritual life. You are a spiritual life. Are you with me? Now, some of you may be familiar with the story of Eric Liddell. He was a, a Scottish sprinter who qualified for the 1924 Olympics. After the Olympics, he would later go on to become a missionary to China And his story is very beautifully captured in the Oscar-winning film, Chariots of Fire. Now, if you are of a younger generation, I would encourage you to go watch this film, but I would just give you the caveat, it is very boring, all right? (laughs) It's very slow, but it's so, so good. And it gets into this tension between uh, the sacred and the secular, the spiritual and the physical. And we see this play out in the movie as Eric Liddell gets heat from kind of two sides of of the spectrum there. There are those who thought that his running was this trivial matter and he needed to get on with what was important and go to China and serve as a missionary. And then there were his teammates and coaches who did not like the way that his faith impacted his running. And one of the practical ways that that played out is he would not run on Sunday. And this, this was not just like a nice sort of uh, theoretical thing. It had very practical implications for him. He was not able to run the gold medal race of the 100-meter sprint, which was his best event in the 1924 Olympics because it was on a Sunday. And, and kind of the, the fun part of the story is he ends up running the 400, which was not his best event, and he won the gold medal anyway. But the whole story, again, is about this kind of of tension. And my favorite quote, and he he says this to his sister who is pressuring him to give up running and, and go to China. He says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. God has made you in a particular way. There are things about you, ways that you have been gifted. There are things that you are good at that might not have the right labels on them. But my encouragement to you would be to do them. If God made you fast, run and feel his pleasure. If God made you creative, create and feel his pleasure. If he made you organized, organize and feel his pleasure. You don't have a spiritual life. You are a spiritual life. When we talk about joy, when we talk about fun is spiritual, this is part of what we're talking about, but there's a whole lot more here. 
John says that this miracle is a sign, meaning it is pointing us towards a deeper truth. Jesus' first miracle is a sign of God's abundant grace. Again, nothing about this is, is a random occurrence. John tells us this story first because it's so foundational to everything that will come after it. Jesus obviously does more than seven signs, but John wants us to understand something so important here. This first sign points us towards the good news of Jesus, which is that God is lavishly abundant in his graciousness towards us. If you were with us last Sunday, we spent some time looking at one of Jesus' most famous stories. It's oftentimes called the story of the prodigal son. And in that story, we saw just how over the top the father is as he welcomes his wayward son home. He's been waiting for him, watching him. When he sees him, he runs to him, uh, hugs him with great compassion, and, and then puts a robe on him, a ring on his finger, kills the best cow, and they have a massive party. I mean, it's just over the top. And we see exactly the same thing here at this wedding, the ridiculous amount of the best wine, 120 to 150 gallons of the best wine saved for last. And you can even hear in the tone of the, um, the banquet um, master, right? Like, oh my goodness, you saved this for the end? It's that sense of, oh, that's how much God loves us. This is the extent of his grace for us. This over-the-top, reckless, abundant, extravagant grace. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we earned it or because we were lovely or because we made ourselves better. Now, when we realize the full extent of the ways that we've blown it, all the ways that we've broken right relationship with God, that is, again, a serious and weighty thing. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. There's a, an appropriate response to our sin that is sorrowful. But notice the progression there. Sorrow that leads to repentance that leads to salvation. And before this, the verse or two before this, the, the writer says, I rejoice. I rejoice, not because you are sad, but because of what that all led to. The experience of grace, abundant, lavish, over-the-top grace, produces joy. In the Greek, joy, grace, and gift all share the same root, kara, charis, charisma. Joy, grace, gift. So joy is a, a response, a grounded response, a posture towards the one who extends us amazing, abundant grace. Now one more thing we're talking about when we talk about joy. Jesus' first miracle is a revelation of God's character. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Too many of us have a picture of God as 
angry, judgmental, this sort of grumpy old man telling you to get off of his lawn. But God is full of joy. We see this in creation. Genesis 1 uh, repeats the refrain as God makes stuff. It was good. It was good. It was very good. We see this in John chapter 2. Jesus goes to a party. He hangs out with people. He makes wine. He makes the best wine. He keeps the party going. In fact, Jesus did this, uh, I think, often enough that he gained a bit of a reputation. Matthew chapter 11, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. And we also see joy, we see God's joy when his mission is being accomplished. Now again, back to last week, we were in Luke chapter 15, and we spent most of our time looking at that prodigal son story. But remember, that story comes in response to some religious people who are grumbling and complaining, just like here in Matthew 11, about the type of people that Jesus is hanging out with, this glutton and drunkard who's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus tells three stories. The first two are about uh, people who lose something. One, one guy loses a sheep, a woman loses a coin, and they go on an all-out search to find the thing that they had lost, even risking the things that they leave behind, the 99 sheep, the nine coins, to try to find the one thing that they had lost. And then when they find it, they party. Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. God rejoices. God is joyful when people discover the good news. Now, our hashtag for the value of joy is fun is spiritual. And I want to end our time this morning with, with three shifts. Again, the last two weeks have been more about practical challenges. Today's more about kind of a, a mental shift that we need to make in order to own this value and, and hopefully to help inform our application of this idea that fun is spiritual. So our first shift is the shift from scarcity to abundance, from a scarcity mentality to an abundance mentality. We worship, and I hope that we've seen this already this morning, but we worship a God who loves us unconditionally, illogically, mysteriously, lavishly, abundantly. We are invited into an abundant life. We are invited into a kingdom where we will be provided for beyond our imaginations. Now, I want to be very clear about this. This abundance mentality is not the same thing as, as a prosperity theology, where if you just you know, believe hard enough or believe enough, then like your bank account will magically grow larger. I wish it worked that way. I don't think that it does. <laughs> Jesus never promises us a karmic world where if we do good things, or if we just believe hard enough, good things will come back to us in return. In fact, he almost talked about it being the other way around that our life will actually be more challenging because we follow Jesus. 
So when we talk about abundance, that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about fun as spiritual, what we're talking about is, uh, if you guys remember back to Matthew chapter 13, the digging for treasure, seeking more, discovering the pearl of great price, the good soil that Jesus invites us to be. This is what we're talking about when we talk about abundance. We believe and trust that there is more. More grace to be received, more love to be experienced. As we engage this mission of helping people discover the good news, we believe God is going to do just that, reveal good news to us and to others. We believe God wants to see repentance, wants to see lives transformed, wants to see churches planted, wants to see the good news shared. But too often we live with a very small God, oh, that could never happen here. Oh, my, you know, my group could never multiply. We'll never get big enough to do that. I, I could never be a leader. I could never disciple somebody. That's a scarcity mentality. And, and confession time, I struggle with this big time. I struggle with the if only. I mean, if only we had more stuff, if only we had more money, if only we had our own building, uh, you know, how are we going to replace Rolly? All these sorts of questions, right? I have to constantly repent of my scarcity mindset and remember we have a big, big God who gave us a big mission, but who also promises to be with us the whole time. Every step of the way. So one shift is from a scarcity mentality to an abundance mentality. There's enough. There's more than enough. The second shift is from binary to holistic. And this brings us back to some things that we've said before. But again, the affirmation of creation. All sorts of binary, sacred, secular, vocational ministry, lay ministry, normal stuff, spiritual stuff. One of the reasons I'm so grateful for Ed and, and you and sharing in that video earlier is because they, they get this, man. They lead our church in this way, big time. And the two of them, Ed especially, constantly inviting people to go to lunch, to, to play games, to, to hang out. Some of the most spiritual activity that happens on a Sunday happens at those lunches where people are hanging out, getting to know each other. Conversations are happening. Relationships are growing. Bridges are being built. The gathering time is important, but so is, is the coffee and conversation that happens in the lobby. So is going to lunch with people. So is sitting down with your family at the end of the day around the dinner table. Hey, what did you guys talk about today? What did you learn? When we gather in groups during the week, the content is important. But so is the hanging out before and after. And so are the random get-togethers that happen over the course of the week and the game nights and floating down the river and the time that we spend around the fire pit, whatever that looks like for you. That's what we're talking about when we talk about fun as spiritual. God is always working. And his work is just as likely to happen at lunch as it is right now. 
His work is just as likely to happen at a wedding as it was at a synagogue. This leads to the final shift, a shift from thinking about in here to out there. One of the reasons we structure very simply here at Discovery is so that you can take the good news that you have experienced with you to wherever God has placed you. I think one of the reasons churches uh, program, over-program people is because they don't trust you. And they don't trust God's spirit to work in your life. And so they think that your transformation is their responsibility. So come to our thing. Come to our program. Come to this. Uh, and the next thing you know, your whole life is church activities. We want to flip that around here. We want to create space in your life to engage with this mission because we believe that when we are on mission together, that's when growth and maturity happens. So we try our best anyway not to overwhelm you with discovery stuff so that you can hang out with your coworkers after work, so that you can coach your kids' sports teams or, or be involved at their schools, so that you can do the things that you love to do, right? The things that when you do them, you feel his pleasure and you can do them with people who need good news. Howard Thurman says, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. What makes you come alive? Go do it. That's what we long for here is to see people fully alive, sharing the good news of Jesus in all segments of our city and our society. So what shift do you need to make? Maybe all of them, maybe you're kind of there, you just need to tweak one of them, but what shift do you need to make? Is it from scarcity to abundance? Do you need to step into the abundance of God's kingdom? Do you need to embrace the truth that you are a spiritual life? This sort of holistic thinking. Do you need to repent of getting stuck in here so that you can move and be more present out there. Our mission is serious, but we embrace it joyfully because of the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And we embrace it joyfully because, my friends, fun is spiritual. Let's pray. Father, we, what we see in Jesus is, uh, again, your just outrageous love for us, your incredible generosity towards us, your amazing grace extended to us. And, and while there are lots of, of applications and rabbit trails and, and ideas to discuss from our conversation this morning. May we end in this place of gratitude for the lengths that you have gone through to be in right relationship with us. To send your son Jesus into this world, into our mess, not above it or apart from it, but very much in it with us. 
to experience what we experience, to walk alongside of us, to teach us a different way to live, to invite us into your kingdom and to right relationship with you so that we might experience the abundant life of following Jesus. Father, I pray right now for those of us here who, who we have not yet accepted this good news, this grace, this gift. Maybe right now, even in this moment, receive that. And then for, for others of us, God, we have lived in sort of two different worlds. There's kind of our church world, and then there's this other world that we're a part of, and we oftentimes struggle to see where those things connect. Help us to be bridge builders who bring that together in this beautiful way. May we know that we are a spiritual life, and wherever you have us, you will use us to share the good news of Jesus with those we are with. Would you give us courage to do just that? We pray all of this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.